Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. If you'd like to go ahead and turn there, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, we will read that together. So go ahead and stand as you're looking that up, our passage for you. Stand together at the reading of God's Word. We stand in honor of hearing from our Lord. When we read the Word of God, we're reading, we're hearing from God. Amen? It's of His Word is our authority. Verse 15, Ephesians chapter 1. For this reason I too, Paul writes, having heard of the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ, which exists among you, and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and a revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection and subjection under his feet, and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we bring this passage of scripture to you because we are we want to not only know it, we want to understand it. Father, we want to our prayers to reflect it. Father, we know in your word that we learn what kind of prayers are pleasing to you. So, Father, this is no difference. We lean from the Apostle Paul. We get a glimpse of your heart and Really, what kind of prayers do you want to dominate our prayer life and how we are to pray for one another? So God, I ask of you that you would give us wisdom. I pray, dear God, that you would give our hearts enlightenment, that you would give us understanding. We've got the information, but give us understanding and how to, and how to do it, how to walk it, how to pray for one another in the spiritual realm. God have you with us this morning. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. You may be seated. In our passage this morning, Paul not only tells the church in Ephesus that he prays for them, he also gives us insight into how he prays for them. You get that? What he asks of the Father on their behalf. And so, here's my question. What does it look like? How can we begin to pray in a way that's really pleasing to God? Now, to think I'm really off the wall this morning, all you have to do is back up to Matthew chapter 6. Go ahead and do that for a moment. Because it's in that chapter on the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus gives us a pattern for prayer. Okay? And I want to show you something there. It coincides with the passage that we're in. Matthew chapter 6, real simply, Verse 8, 9, and 10. So do not be like them, that is the Pharisees, the religious leaders, who pray just a lot of words, okay? The more they pray, the more spiritual they were. Okay, just knock the devil out of the ballpark, say that wrong. So do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Wow, 
spiritual basis. Pray then this way, our Father who art in heaven. Begin with adoring who God is. Begin by recognizing his majesty, his sovereignty, his holiness, his character. Pray, our Father who art in heaven, start a request. Hallowed be thy name. Start your prayers by request. God, I want your name before I ask for anything. What I want above and beyond anything else is for your name to be hallowed in my life, in the life of the church, in the life of my brothers and sisters in Christ. So, thy kingdom come, your will be done. Verse 10, on earth as it is in heaven. Notice this, is God, that your will come down to earth. See that? Your kingdom, your rule and reign, Jesus, come in the lives of men and women, particularly in the life of your church. This is kind of like he's saying, when you pray, pray this way. Number one, pray spiritually. Pray spiritually. Notice he doesn't say right off the bat, God, uh, I want to pray right now and ask that you heal so-and-so, help so-and-so, and give this laundry list of physical requests before God. Now, let me stop here for a minute because I don't want to be misunderstood. I'm not saying that we should not pray for people physically. What I'm saying is that's typically how we pray and we limit our prayers to just that. What I'm saying is this, the Word of God prioritizes our prayer, and we have the first example of this in how Jesus taught us to pray. In the first of the little list, the priorities is God, I want your name to be held. That's my first and foremost desire. I want you to be glorified and magnified. Second of all, he says what in verse 10? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not until verse 11 does he talk about meeting our physical needs. He says, down the list a little bit. Give us this day our daily <laughs> That's all I'm trying to point out here. When you evaluate your prayer life, I evaluate my prayer life, what do we typically, what dominates our prayer time? Usually, and, I, and this means usually, it's not it's just making a general statement, for Christians, we kind of just cling on to and pray for somebody only when we see them in a physical situation that we'd like to see them delivered from. Right? So what I'm saying is that Paul gives us insight into what the prayers that really please God and how Paul prays here. The content of his prayer matches with what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6. It's not a matter of whether we pray physically or not, it's a physical request or not. It's how we prioritize it. That's all I'm saying, right? So, our passage this morning deals with that. I want to make an observation out of the book of Ephesians. This is not the only time Paul explains to us what he prays about. He also does it again in chapter 3. We like to turn there for a moment. Chapter 3. Verse 14, he says this, For this reason I what? Bow my knees. Twice in this letter, Paul explains to the church in Ephesus how he prays for them. I want to make this observation. Prayer number one, which is our passage this morning, is on the heels to how God has blessed us in Christ. Right? In verses 3 through 14, it's all about the blessings we have in him, in him, in him, in Christ. And then Paul, based on the blessings we have in Christ, shares his prayer with them. But then you get to chapter 2 and 3, and things change a little bit. The context changes. After talking about what it means to be in the body of Christ, then in chapter 3, verse 14, he concludes that section with another prayer. 
For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth derives its name. Verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, you church, has to be the church, has to be the saints, being what? Rooted, listen to this, being rooted and grounded in love, the love of God, the love of Christ. We are rooted in the love of God, the love of Christ. May be able to comprehend, grasp, is the idea. We gotta, you, you have not begun to grasp the love of God. We'll never stop grasping more and more the depth, the height, the width, the breadth of God's love. We're not there yet. Reason one reason, out of many reasons to come to church, is because we want to grasp God's love for us a little bit more. Right? So we did it to us. That's why Paul goes on to say this in verse 18 and 19. May be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. You can't know it enough. Here's all the knowledge, and his love surpasses it. That means simply this, beloved. We can never know it enough. Because his love is infinite. His love is eternal. Amen? Can I just blow you away? How do you know that? Because of the cross of Christ. Because of the resurrection of Christ. Amen? Okay. So here it is. Paul in chapter 1 talks about the blessings we have in Christ. And he says, this I pray for you. Then you get into chapter 2 and 3. And he says, you're not only in Christ, you're in the body of Christ. And then he closed that section with a prayer. Before he gets into chapter 4. Isn't that beautiful how he sets up his book? All right, let's go back to our passage this morning. I just wanted to show you that. We're going to deal in chapter 3, weeks down the road, probably a couple months from now. But I want to show you that observation that intertwined in this six chapters of this letter are two prayers of Paul. One related to the blessings we have in Christ, and the other prayer related to being in the body of Christ. It really kind of launches us into our text this morning. So what I want to do is I... Taken, I took this section and divided it up into three parts. Part number one is who Paul prayed for, verses 15 and 16. Okay, real simple. Then in verses 17 through the middle of verse 19, what Paul prays for, or how Paul prayed for them, or what, the content of his prayer. And then finally, the third point this morning is why Paul prayed this prayer. Why? Okay? Let's look at the first one. We're going to walk our way through these three, and they will lead us into communion this morning. Amen? All right. First, I want you to notice verse 15. Please have your Bible in front of you. Don't look at me. I'm not worth looking at. And uh, just, uh, we're going to walk through these verses together. Verse 15, for this reason. Some of you might have in your Bibles, therefore. Okay? The New American Standard says, for this reason. It's the same thing. For this reason. What reason? Based upon what I just wrote about. Because of the blessings you have in Christ, okay? Having heard of the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ, which exists among you, and your love for all the saints. So he's referring back to the previous discussion on the blessings that we have in Christ. And because God has blessed us so much, because I've heard of your faith and the love you have for the saints, and I've ceased to pray for you, he's going to say, here's how I do pray for you. I want you to notice something in verse 15, how Paul identifies the church, how he identifies the saints. He mentions two characteristics. Look at them. I've heard of what? Your, 
heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you, and what? Your love for all the saints. Are you getting this? He didn't just say, I heard of your faith in Jesus. But he adds to that the second part. The love which exists among you. Your love for all the saints. Here's the lesson. Here's the exhortation for us. Scripture does never conceive or think about one trusting Jesus or being in Christ without identifying with the body of Christ. It's a both and, not an either or. The New Testament never conceives of someone that follows Jesus but that is not involved in the body of Christ on a local level. The way we show our love for the Savior is by being involved in, in, in his or with his body. Being a part of it. We are a member of the body of Christ. I, I love this. I love what Paul says in verse 15 because it kind of sets us up for what's coming up later on in the book of Ephesus. I mean, the book of Ephesians. It gives us a hint of what's coming up later on down the road as you write in this book. It, it, it's, it's like he's fusing the two together. A Christian, therefore, is one who not only has faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and is in Christ, but also understands and recognizes that they are part of the body of Christ. How many people today do we know that call themselves Christians yet never go to church? But they go once or twice a year or four or five times a year. Oh, I love Jesus. He's my Savior. He's my Lord. Okay, well, show it. Demonstrate it. How do you know? Scripturally. It is scripturally inconceivable for one to think about being in Christ without being in Christ's body. That's from verse 15. So I think it's very profound. I think we learn a lot just from verse 15 and how when Paul described the saints, he gave them these two primary characteristics. Are they ours? Are they yours? Yes. When I look at his body, I see yes. We encourage you. I see it. It encourages those around you. I still want to be a people that, that typically just walks around saying, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, and yet there's no connection. You, you say you're connected to Jesus, but you're not connected to his body. This, this, this is difficult. And I bet you, I bet you, figuratively speaking, you know somebody in your family or a co-worker or a neighbor that is like that. But as your pastor, as the elders, we encourage you, we implore you more and more and more to be a part of the body of Christ. In our culture today, in church culture today, we severed the head from the body. Scripture never, never presents Christ in that manner. For the believer in that way, to be a part, to be in Christ is also to be a part of the body of Christ. All right. I think you get the point just of verse 15 alone. And then in verse 16, he says, I do not cease giving thanks to you. That's like pray without ceasing. When I think about you, when I think about praying, my mind goes to you, church of Ephesus, and it's time to pray for you. Really, what you were getting a glimpse of is this Paul's heart for the, for the church. Paul's heart for the church. A shepherd's heart for the people. This has really spoke to me in the last couple of weeks. So I'm learning how to pray for you better, more, the way God wants me to pray. I pray for you physically. I pray for Dax, by the way, who just this week had his big hole in his leg. He had it grafted in, correct? 
in 17, 18, and 19. He says this. And actually, yeah, 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you to a spirit, may give you a spirit of wisdom and a revelation and a knowledge of him. I take verse 17 as a general statement and at least as specific. So what you have here in 17, 18, and 19 is Paul going from general to particular, general to specific. So he makes a general statement in verse 17, and then he like fleshes it out in 18 and 19. You typically write that way. That's just an observation. Okay? He goes from general to specific in this short little section. This is a general statement of purpose. And it's followed by three specific requests. In essence, in verse 17, let me flesh this out a little bit for us. He says that God would give you Sophia, wisdom. Application of scripture. Okay? Application of scripture. And the knowledge of God. And look at the word revelation. And a revelation in the knowledge of him. So it says that God give you a spirit of wisdom, a Sophia, and I will find and a revelation in the knowledge of him that your eyes might be illumined, enlightened. We go on to verse 18. I pray the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Revelation. Not in the sense of giving more revelation, but giving us illumining, giving us more understanding of what we already have in that sense is what he's talking about here. Okay? We have revelation from God. But he qualifies what he means in verse 17 and a revelation of knowledge of him by saying, I pray that your eyes and your heart may be enlightened with what you've already been given. And that really fits this context because the context is this. Now that you know how you've been blessed, I want you to spend the rest of your time thinking about what God has already given you. Stop asking for more. Learn about what he's already given you. Sometimes when I pray, I find myself, Jesus, when you're struggling, God, help me. I need more of this and more of that. And he's going, God, you're not giving me everything you need. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. Peter says, God has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Beloved, I think what we don't understand is we have everything we need in Christ. God has not sold you short. God is not giving you 50%. He's not giving you 70, 80, 90, 99.9. He's giving you everything you need to walk with Christ on this earth, on this planet, in the body you have until he comes and gets you. It's about discovering and learning and understanding more of how blessed we already are. And that was Paul's point here. And that, that's why that's what's driving into this prayer request. So verse 18, he qualifies that they, they see and understand that your eyes may be enlightened, illumined, is the idea. That means bring to light or bring light to an object in order to see it for what it really is. Bring light to an object so that you can see that object for what it truly, really is. Think about this illustration, a dimmer switch. The room's totally dark. You are told the furniture that's in the room. Right? So you understand, you've been given the information of what kind of furniture is in that room, but as you walk in the room, it's very dark. So you're told what kind of furniture it is. You might even be told where that furniture is, but you really don't see it. So the Holy Spirit is like the dimmer switch. Every time you get into the Word of God, it's like a dimmer switch that turns up the light a little bit more. So the Word of God exposes the reality of the blessings that God has for you in that room. Does that make sense? So it's like a dimmer switch. 
So every time you hear the word of God, every time we come together as a church, you hear the word of God preached, we're saying, God, I want to see a little bit more of what you've already given me in Jesus. So that's the idea with verse 18 where he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. It's not just a mental exercise, but the word of God is is like a a fan that, 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 that just fans the flame of our hearts. So it's not just informational, it's relational. Okay? Our love for him, they grow. Our love for one another would grow. Our submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ would become deeper and richer. And our submission to one another would grow richer and deeper. Which Paul will discuss later on in this book. Let's go on. There there are three things he gets specific about. And then begin in verse... Excuse me. Verse middle of verse 18. So that, there's a purpose statement. So that you will know what is the hope of this calling. Notice he doesn't say that you would receive the hope of this calling. You've already received it. He wants you to know it better now. You see the idea here? Okay? Because he's already given it to you. He just expressed you have all these things in Christ. And I want you to know them more. Number one, what is the hope of this calling? Number two, the riches of this inheritance. And number three, the greatness of this power. Let's look at each one of these. What is the hope of this calling? Well, if you look how we're blessed in first part of chapter one, we are called to adoption. We are called to salvation. We are called to redemption. We are called to be with them, to be with them in heaven. That's our blessed hope. Turn with me as a parallel passage, Romans chapter eight, if you will. Romans chapter eight. He said, Paul's praying, God, I want them to know better, more richly, deeply, the hope of your calling them. God, you're calling them to salvation. You've called them to salvation. You've called them to redemption. You've called them as your children. You've called them to adoption. You've called them to receive an inheritance. All these blessings. You've called them to receive these things. What does that mean? Romans chapter 8. Let's look at verse 16. We're trying to flesh this calling out a little bit. Okay. Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are what? Come on, wake up. Children of God. Amen? The spirit witnesses with our spirit, the inner man, that we are God's children. How does he do it? Through osmosis? No. Let's keep reading. And children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with them, so that we will also be glorified with them. You see, to follow Christ means at certain times in your lives, you're going to suffer for following Christ. And in this context, it's not suffering as in persecution, it's the internal suffering, struggle with sin. That's the kind of suffering he's dealing with here in chapter 8. It begins in chapter 7, by the way. Verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. You've got an idea of hope now. God, I'm your child right now. It's 2017. What's the date today? It's September 17th. I'm here. I'm your child. I'm on this planet. I'm in this body. And I struggle. But I'm your child. Oh, God, help me. That's exactly what we're talking about here. Listen to this. Meanwhile, I, I what? There's nothing to compare to the glory that is to be revealed. God, okay, I've been praised. Oh God, you've lavished with me. You've opened my eyes up to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
that I am justified in him. But Lord God, I also know in the future there's a glory to come that I've not experienced yet. That we will be glorified with him in verse 17. That's why in verse 18, for I consider the sufferings of this present time. Wow. Here I am the child of God suffering. Have you ever suffered as a child of God? Raise your hand. No. Have you ever suffered as a child of God? Yes. If not externally, as in being persecuted because of your faith, internally because of your struggle against the flesh, which Paul develops in chapter 7. seven. Here I am a child of God. I'm in this body, and I'm suffering, and I'm struggling internally, maybe with a sin, maybe with my thought life, maybe with motive, maybe with a relationship. I'm angry at this person, this group of people, or whatever. So I'm really struggling here. And I catch my thought life down in thinking things that I know that are not honoring to the Lord Jesus. So I fight them, and I try to keep them taking from those thoughts to become what? Actions. I hear spiritual warfare going on. But yet at the same time, there's this glory yet to be revealed in the future. Even though I'm suffering in the present. Verse 19, 20, and 21, the whole creation is suffering to a degree. Is it? But I want to skip down because I want to wrap this up. Verse 22, for we know the whole creation grows suffers, not just we. Because of the fall. The whole creation owns and suffers. Verse 23, and not only this, but also we ourselves, what suffer, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown where? Where's the text say? Within ourselves. Literally, within ourselves. So you know what Paul has in mind here? An, an internal suffering, an internal growing as a result of being in this body and having to fight against my own flesh. Meanwhile, notice what it says in verse 23, waiting eagerly for our adoption. Hope again. So you're suffering now, but you're to suffer it, hanging on to the hope that you'll be glorified with Christ when he comes again. Beloved, may that enter into our minds, may that flood our souls in time of spiritual drought, in time of struggle. That's why God gives us these truths of the gospel as tools to fight our flesh, to fight depression, to fight anxiousness, when we find ourselves in an internal warfare struggling against our own flesh. Heaven, God doesn't want heaven just to be some nice thought. It is a truth. It's a blessed Mm -hmm. hope that we are to grasp onto while we're suffering on this earth. When we don't do that, we just fall flat on our face. We get woe is me, we lose sight of the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ when we don't grab hold of the hope that lies in it. Verse 24, excuse me, verse 23, the end of that. Groaning within ourselves, we eagerly for our adoption of sons. What does it mean? The redemption of our body. The redemption of your body. You know what? I know the reason why I was struggling so in this whole body. I also struggle physically, but he has more in mind struggling spiritually because of his body. I know the blessed hope one day I'm getting a new body. Amen? Which takes us to the second point that he has in Ephesians. So turn back to Ephesians, going into the second thing he prays for. Not only that they would know the hope of his calling, but number two, the riches of his inheritance. Very end of verse 18. 
What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in reference to the saints? What do saints inherit? How rich are we? I don't feel very rich now. Of course not. To answer the question, how rich we are, we can only look to heaven. I want you to think about that. If you really want to know how rich you are now, the only way to do that is to look to heaven. So turn with me to Revelation 21 for a moment. Revelation 21. Paul just says, God, may they know the hope of your calling them to salvation. And by the way, we look at that calling real quick. I want you to take note of this. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also what? Called. There's that word calling. And these whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. When God calls you to salvation, he sees it from the beginning to the very end. From beginning to end. He sees you all the way through. But meanwhile, you catch yourself here in the middle, in these bodies, on this planet, though you're a child of God, you still suffer and you still struggle. God is saying, I want you to know, I've justified you and I'm going to glorify you. What does that mean? I'm going to redeem you. Your body eventually will be redeemed. I'm going to give you a new one. Yes, you're my child, you're a new person in Jesus Christ, but you've got this residue of flesh all about you. You're in the same old body that doesn't want to cooperate, but I want you to know this one day there's going to be rest for you, and it's going to be with me in heaven. And that's when I give you a new body. The corruptible will become incorruptible. That which is temporal will become eternal. All things. The first Corinthians 15. So we're looking at the riches of this inheritance. Chapter 21 of Revelation, just verse 27. And nothing is unclean, and no one who practices abomination in life shall ever come into it. What's it referring to? He's talking about the new heaven and new earth. He's talking about the new Jerusalem here in chapter 21. So a new heaven and new earth, and heaven nothing unclean, no one who practices abomination in life shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. In other words, we're looking forward to the place where nothing unclean dwells. Only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. These are the ones who will take on an incorruptible body, an incorruptible body, and be with Christ forever. J.C. Ryle says this. Listen to this. They will enter the place of perfect peace and rest. No more conflict for the world, the flesh, or the devil. Their warfare is accomplished. Their fight is fought. They have laid aside their armor, their sword, and now they rest. Sin and temptation are forever shut out. Sorrow, anxiousness, and unhappiness simply do not exist. Revelation 21, 4, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning of pain, J.C. Ryle goes on to say, shame on us if we murmur and complain and turn back to such a heaven before our very eyes. Wow. Let me read that again. I've read it many times. Shame on us if we murmur and complain and turn back with such a heaven before our eyes. That's what Paul says, the glory to come outweighs the present suffering. How often do we meditate on it? 
walk by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and love his church. Let's go on to the third one. The greatness of his power going back to uh, Ephesians chapter 1. The first part of verse 19. He says not only that they would know the hope of his calling, the riches of their inheritance, but number three, the greatness of his power. Does that mean the call to make us his, the power to redeem, the power to forgive? And what he wants us to know is what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. The power to make us alive in Christ. Go to chapter 2, for example. Just real quick, we'll go on to the third point this morning. Chapter 2, after verse 1, 2, and 3, talking about that we were dead in our sins. And that word should never be taken figuratively, but literally, spiritually dead. Unable to do anything about my lostness. Not even really wanting to do anything about my lostness. But then you get to verse 4, but God. Next week's sermon is simply entitled, but God. It's the power of God unto salvation. Amen? And so that's what Paul has in mind. I think that's really why in chapter 2 he begins to talk about that. Explain what it means to be in Christ. It means literally that you have been spiritually awakened from the dead. You've embraced the power from our eyes. So may we know not only is the hope of God's calling us to himself, one of the riches of the glory of his inheritance, but also verse 19, number 3, to know what is surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe, to fulfill what he's promised. The power to give us the glory of heaven. So that's the, that's the content of our <laughs> prayer, that they may know these three things. And guess what? You can pray for these three things for anybody whether they're going through a hard time or not. These are like spiritual prayer requests that we should be lifting up one another with. Oh God, so-and-so is going through this situation, this circumstance. They've just been blessed. Oh God, may they know the hope of your calling, even though they're on the mountaintop experience. May they know the hope of your calling, even though they're in a valley right now because of something that's happened to them, that is disaster drastic. May they understand, even though you've blessed them with physical things on earth, may they understand the riches of the inheritance they have in Christ that awaits them in heaven. May they understand more and more. And may you turn up the dinner switch so that we can grasp more the power of God in giving us all these things. I think to the little salvation to the little cost. The little salvation to the little work of Christ. It's to make a little Jesus with a little power. Instead of for the sovereign that he is, the eternal power. Amen. Alright, let's go to the third point in this prayer. Verse 19 through 23. Why does Paul pray these things? I'm going to read through it. It's going to be really simple. Verse 19, the middle of verse 19. These are in accordance. What are these that are in accordance? These three things. That you may know the hope of this calling, the riches of his inheritance, and the greatness of his power. These are in accordance with the working of his strength, with the strength of, excuse me, his might, which he brought about in Christ. When? There's a temporal clause, okay? When did this happen? Next week. Today. No. When he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the Father. What is Paul saying? You've already got it. This is yours. 
when I placed you in my son, I gave you all these blessings. Now, Paul praying that the rest of the time just, just felt weird. Okay. All of a sudden it came Something much better? Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, I don't know. I didn't do anything. Obviously. It's better than I didn't do it. Okay. <laughs> so, he's saying, I want them to know. I want the church to say, I pray for you that you would understand and you would know and you would grow in what God has already given to you when he brought it. And that word means worked it out in Christ at the resurrection and his ascension. You've already got these things, he's saying. Stop asking for more. I've given you everything. I have taken care of you. Even your salvation goes back before the foundation of the world. Your salvation goes to eternity future. You are eternally secure. And I find you right now struggling as my child. Or as Paul would say as a pastor, struggling as a follower of Christ. But you need to know this one thing. You've got it all. God held nothing back when it came to you. When it came to loving you. When it came to gracing you and giving you. He gave his all, is what Paul is saying. So when it comes later on to the body of Christ, it's all based upon who we are in Christ. And so when I look at you, I don't have more of Jesus than you do, or you do, or you do. None of us have more than somebody else. God gave us this all to each one of us. And the more we understand and discover and know that, the more we'll be affected in the body. The more encouraging we'll be to our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the beauty of this passage. Which he brought about or worked out in Christ when, verse 20, he raised him from the dead. The resurrection is seated at the right hand of the heavenly places. Okay, what does that mean? Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And Paul goes further. And every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. Which is his body. The fullness of him who fills all in all. Why did Paul pray this way? Because we already have these saints in Christ. It's not a matter of not having them. It's a matter of discovering them more and more. Well, it's already been given to you by God himself. This is what you have because you're in him. Brothers and sisters, it's not that we lack blessing. It's that we lack the understanding of the blessings we already have in Christ. We are called to show them forth. I love this idea of the fullness of him who fills all in all. What this means is that Jesus is not only the head of his church. Listen to this. But Jesus wants to fill the church with himself to show himself forth. That's what Paul says in Galatians 2.20. You turn back to a couple of pages. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Say it as a church. We have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer us who lives, but Christ who lives through us as a church. As Christ fills us. That's the idea. He is our head. He is our authority. He's our majesty. And our authority, the majesty of the church, is also the sovereign of the universe of the unbelieving world. And when you get to chapter 6 of Ephesians, not only that, but the world we do not see. He is sovereign over all the evil. He is sovereign over the principalities and the powers that we don't even see. And most like we'll hardly ever deal with. He's sovereign over all. But the church, he is called to be filled with himself. 
and it begins by understanding that all the blessings that we have in Jesus. That's where it begins. That's why it all began in chapter 1 with the blessings of being in Christ. That's what the church is founded on. There you say. Now, just pause there for a moment. I want to transition into communion this morning. I want you to think right now, before we take communion, change gears a little bit. Remember what you think about your prayer life? Does your prayer life reflect these, these exhortations, these prayers of Paul? Do we pray spiritually like that for one another? If not, say, God, help me do that. I want to pray this way. I want to pray for things like this. This is more eternal prayers. Make a request. Number two, before you take communion, ask yourself, is there any sin in my life that, that, that needs to be dealt with before I take communion? Because this is about fellowship. We take communion because of our relationship that expresses our fellowship. And as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, listen, listen, he says, we celebrate the Lord's death until he comes to death. What does that mean? It means we celebrate the death because it means our life. Amen? His death gives us life. So how are you living that life that God has given you? How are you living that? How's your walk with Jesus? How is your walk with the body of Christ, not just the head of the church, but the church? So, as we're handing out the elements, pray this way. Be talking to God privately to yourself. Don't just have your minds wander about something happening this afternoon or yesterday. Focus during communion. Focus on the Lord Jesus. Talk to Him. Make, make this communion special this morning. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we can come forward to these mercy elements. God, you are our hearts. And we ask, dear God, that we would do this in a way that is pleasing to you. Above reproach, fellowship with you. So, Lord God, thank you for the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. And we do it out of obedience to you. But we don't fear to do it, Lord God, without self-examination and looking at our lives. And asking you, Lord God, we measure up. We don't in perfectness, but Lord God, our average daily walk with you. Is there anything there in our lives that obviously we need to confess to you? Maybe confess privately in our own hearts and our own souls. Maybe I'm the relationship is not right here, God. I pray that person would get it. That's more important to you than it is to just go through the motions.